failure to launch. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Two attempts to launch NASA's new moon rocket, SLS, and deep space capsule Orion have been waved off, facing a handful of issues, including a hydrogen leak. Now engineers are working on fixing the issues for an attempt as soon as the end of this month, as NASA faces pressure to get this long-delayed and over-budget rocket to the moon. Launch director Charlie Blackwell-Thompson is not going to let this vehicle go anywhere until she and her team are absolutely convinced they have done everything and that we're actually ready to lift off. NASASpaceflight.com's Chris Gebhardt joins us to break down the issues facing SLS and the agency's plan to prepare for the vehicle's maiden flight from Kennedy Space Center. That's coming up on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. At NASA's Kennedy Space Center, teams are working to fix an issue that scrubbed the second launch attempt of the agency's Artemis 1 mission earlier this month. It's the first mission of NASA's SLS rocket and Orion spacecraft on an uncrewed trip around the moon and back, testing key systems of the vehicle before astronauts fly on it next. In an update released Monday, NASA says the ground team will test that fix this week and could try once more to launch the vehicle as early as September 27th. But it's more than just a hydrogen leak keeping Artemis 1 on the ground. To talk more about the issues facing this mission and the possible path forward, we're joined by Chris Gephardt. He's the assistant managing editor of nasaspaceflight.com. Chris, good to have you back on the show. My pleasure to be back. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, isn't there? There really is. And and let's start going back to that last uh, launch attempt of Artemis 1. What ultimately happened? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's a little bit... I think we have to go back to attempt one, actually, on the 29th okay. to sort of really understand what happened on Saturday the 3rd. So so basically, when, when they came in on the 29th, the very first launch attempt, they, they had not been able to do something in the wet dress rehearsal. And this was to establish what's known as liquid hydrogen bleeds to all four of the main engines. And liquid hydrogen bleed is just a really fancy way of saying letting a little hydrogen into the engines to thermally cool them down to that negative 420 degrees Fahrenheit limit that they need to be in, plus or minus 40 degrees on either side of that, um, which is called their start box range. And they have to be within that temperature range in order to ignite properly. What would happen if not? Is that is that an issue just to condition the engines for this blast of, of really cool liquid hydrogen that's going to come into those engines. That's exactly right, Brendan. And basically what would happen if the engines weren't thermally conditioned properly is all of the sensors and everything on the rocket would catch that and they would not even be permitted to attempt to start. Okay. Um, so a lot, lot of launch lockouts are in place to make sure that the engines do not light unless they are ready. And then likewise on the big solid rocket boosters, once you light those, you're going somewhere uh, regardless of if you want to or not. So there are launch lockouts on those two that are only released after the four engines on the core stage are verified to be operating properly after they are brought up to speed. So because they weren't able to do this bleed on the wet dress rehearsal campaigns, that was sort of the big outstanding thing they needed to prove on attempt one. And that's where we were unable, or they rather were unable to establish the bleed to one of the engines properly. And basically, as it turns out, the engine was bled properly, engine was in its proper temperature, but there's a little temperature sensor on this bleed line up in the core stage that malfunctioned. 
and was telling them, hey, we've got a much, much warmer temperature here than we should have. And the issue they were having is physics dictates that hydrogen is liquid at a certain temperature, and the sensor was telling them they were much higher. So they had to stop. And that might not all seem relevant to attempt number three, except that's what got us to the attempt on the third. Um, and they had this workaround plan to basically say, okay, we know from other sensors that the hydrogen is fine, so we can ignore this faulty one. And that's what they were sort of stepping into, but they had modified procedures that they implemented for the third. Um, and basically what they started to do is they started to chill down and fuel the liquid hydrogen sooner in the countdown than they had before. And this would allow them to start the bleed of the engines about 45 minutes early. This is a procedure they actually practiced and saw in 2021 out at the Stennis Space Center when they put the core on the big stand, fueled it up and fired the engines for the full eight and a half minutes. And then that sort of brought the question, well, wait a minute, if you already knew the workaround out at Stennis, why didn't you just do this here at Kennedy to begin with? And the answer sort of became, well, you don't have as much liquid hydrogen in the storage tanks at Kennedy yet as you did over at Stennis. So they were trying to be a bit more conservative on how much propellant they were utilizing. And when they went and they changed all these procedures, they had what they believe at this point was an unrelated pressure surge, but it happened during these modified tanking procedures where they basically overpressurized the liquid hydrogen system accidentally through the automatic systems. They caught it, they stopped everything. But right after they did that, we they then had a really, really, really big leak of liquid hydrogen, right basically where the part that reaches out from the launch pad grabs the side of the rocket is where this was leaking. And it was leaking three to four times the acceptable amount. So they had to stop. And that's what sort of got us here today, which is basically to say what got us here today is as much as they will not admit it, they didn't complete a full wet dress rehearsal. And a lot of these things would have been caught if they had actually completed a full wet dress rehearsal. Chris G, let's let's go back to high school chemistry for a moment and remind me, because I didn't pay much attention in high school chemistry, why hydrogen is not a good thing to have <laughs> bleeding or, or, or leaking out of your rocket. Why, why is it such a concern? Yeah, and, and we use, NASA really does use uh, some intriguing terms, bleeding and everything yeah. like that, which makes it sound very much more dramatic than it actually is. But um, it, it, the, the easiest way to describe this is hydrogen is the smallest molecule that there is. Uh, there's only one valence electron in its outer shell. So not only is it small, Therefore, it's incredibly hard to main, can, can, contain because it's so small, the smallest, smallest, smallest little leak path in your seals, and it's going to find it, and it's going to find it a lot. Um, but the problem with it leaking is then because of that one valence electron in its outer shell, because it wants to, it wants to readily combine with other things around it. And it, it can be stable in low, low, low concentrations. So below 4% concentration in the ambient air that we breathe, you're not going to ignite hydrogen in that regard. Like you can't light a match and just randomly ignite hydrogen in the atmosphere. 
because the concentration is so low. But when that concentration starts to get really, really, really high around leak points, like what they were seeing, they were seeing leaks of 12% in the ambient air instead of the three to 4%, that's the safety limit. So it becomes this really large flammability issue. And once you then ignite it, it can ignite things around it. And if you're leaking it, that ignition path then has a source right back to the 800,000 gallon tank of liquid hydrogen that is sitting at the launch pad. So, Which would not be a good thing. Not be a good thing, exactly. So at all costs, you do not want to ignite the hydrogen around your vehicle. So, okay, so that's good to know. Um, you, you mentioned that this could have been solved or, or at least caught in a wet dress rehearsal. That doesn't seem to be the path forward here. There's not going to be another wet dress rehearsal. Uh, NASA says they are attempting a launch later this month. Um, what happens between now and then? What is the proposed plan to fix this issue and then be ready for that first launch attempt? Yeah, so they're kind of working on that now. So basically, without rolling the vehicle back to the vehicle assembly building, they can do all the seal replacement work and all the work that they need to do on what is called the tail serviced um tail service mast umbilical, which is the part at the base of the rocket that reaches out and grabs the base of the core stage to fuel the vehicle. There are two of them. One side does liquid hydrogen, one side does liquid oxygen. Um, and they're replacing the seals on the hydrogen side. They have already gotten through that. They, they didn't just replace the seal that leaked. They're taking the opportunity to really check all of them in that area. And then they're going to proceed into a fueling test where they're going to fuel the core stage and the interim cryogenic propulsion stage, which is the big fancy term for the upper stage. Uh, you'll also hear NASA refer to that as the ICPS. Um, they're going to fuel that fully with liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. Um, but they are. But once they do that, they're basically just doing it to verify the integrity of the seals, that there are no more leaks on the liquid hydrogen side of the system and also on the liquid oxygen side, which... To be fair, the liquid oxygen side has more or less behaved itself since the first couple of wet dress rehearsals when they learned a couple of, you know, first time things with this vehicle on this pad with these pumps and everything like that. Um, liquid, liquid oxygen has really behaved itself. So that's the plan forward. They outright said they're not going to do a wet dress rehearsal on this. They're not going to do terminal count runs. They're not going to go down and do the other things that they still have not done yet from the terminal count or from the wet dress rehearsals. So that seems to be it. They're, they're ruling it out. Um, and they're just saying, we're going to do a tanking test. And if the tanking test goes to plan and there are no more leaks, they could conceivably be ready from a vehicle standpoint, but there's a whole nother question out there about whether or not they'll even be able to attempt in September, which is as of recording still outstanding. <laughs> Yes. So let's let's talk about that because we you've you've really do dove in and, and told us the issue with the hydrogen and, and the path forward to fixing that. But there is this other issue that you alluded to, um, which is a certification of the flight termination system. Tell me about that issue and why this could be the reason why we don't launch later this month. Yeah. So the flight termination system are the series of charges that are on board the vehicle that would allow the range, the Eastern range, also known as the 45th, sort of colloquially, to destroy the rocket if it started to fly off course, if it had anomalies, things along those nature. Uh, these systems have to be on all US rockets. That is a US government mandate. You have to be able to destroy the rocket if it goes off course. 
And specifically for SLS, it is a manual flight termination system, which means there's literally someone at the range who has to put keys into a system, turn them a specific way, and then hit the big destruct button. Um, those systems have to be able to talk as the rocket is in flight back down to the ground, and there are batteries to keep them charged. And the batteries are wherein the problem lies uh, for SLS. The range has a rule that when you connect those batteries and do their final tests, you are certified to use them for 20 days because the range has to be able to destroy the vehicle if they need to. Not just for land, but for planes that are in the sky, for the safety of mariners out on the water, lots of considerations here. So NASA was able to get the range to say, okay, certified for 20 days, let's take that to 25 with appropriate documentation so they could have all the days in the previous launch window. And I think a lot of people can understand how you can go from 20 to 25 days, right? That seems, that seems logical to a lot of people. What is interesting here is NASA is asking for more than a doubling of that to outward to 47 to 50 days to get through the two attempts that they have asked for. And NASA is saying, well, we have all this data that says the batteries are fine. We don't need to roll back. We don't need to retest. The range just needs to look at it and say, go. And if the range doesn't say yes, we have to roll back. Well, someone at the range got to NASA because they've really been backtracking those statements um, ever since they initially made them and talking about how much they love the range and how great of a partnership it is and really hammering home the fact that that is true here, that the range has the ultimate say. And just because you are NASA does not mean the range is going to bend over backwards and say, eh, sure, we'll violate all our, our policies. So there are two options that that can come from this as we record it. One is that the range comes back to NASA and says, no, even with the data that you have given us, we are not comfortable extending this to 50 days, which is more or less what they're asking for to get through the 27th. You have to follow the rules and procedures that you have known about for a decade and designed this vehicle to only meet by rolling back to the vehicle assembly building. That's what you've got to do. If that's what the range says, that's what NASA does. There's no there's no say in it. There's no going back and forth with the range. They are the ultimate authority as given by the president of the United States. That That is who has given them that authority to overrule government and military agencies in that regard. Now, conversely, the range could look at everything that NASA says and all the data that they have and say, you know what? You're right. Um, all the data that you prevent, presented us gives us confidence that the system and the batteries are still working and you do not need to roll back to retest. We are good to grant you that waiver and you can remain on the pad for the 23rd and the 27th attempts here this month. Which one's more likely? Mm. <laughs> you knew I was going to ask you, right? <laughs> yeah. Which one is more likely? Well, I'll put it this way. A former space shuttle program manager that we got to talk to over the weekend had a really good tweet uh, that says, he had to go to the range and ask for waivers many times during the course of the shuttle program. And he, as he put it, his batting average was, quote, rather low okay. against the range. So we will see. It, it doesn't mean no. Um, but the fact that the range did not give an outright no when NASA first asked for this, they, they are legitimately reviewing everything. The fact that it's taking this long might actually be a good sign for NASA that they are really looking at the really talking about what the data points are telling them and really having a, a good long conversation about can we extend this can we not so 
Sometimes prolonged conversations in spaceflight are actually what you want, because if you just hear an outright, they have an answer, you're like, uh oh, <laughs> like, that's usually a no, you know, at, at that point. <laughs> Our conversation with Chris Gebhardt, assistant managing editor of NASASpaceflight.com, continues after the break here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're talking with Chris Gebhardt. He's the assistant managing editor of nasaspaceflight.com about delays and issues facing NASA's Artemis 1 mission, the first flight of NASA's SLS rocket and Orion space capsule on an uncrewed trip around the moon. Before the break, Gebhardt recounted NASA's plans to fix the vehicle at the pad. We continue our conversation digging into NASA's hesitation to roll the rocket back to the vehicle assembly building. The the sort of biggest one for them at this point is that rolling to and from the vehicle assembly building is not a benign process for the vehicle, right? We talk a lot when, when these things are rolling about how amazing the crawler transporters are at keeping them level and hauling this, you know, 16 million pound vehicle out to the launch pad. But there's a lot of vibrations that go through the rocket called the stack. Um, And those vibrations can wear on certain components, wear on certain elements of the vehicle that all sort of link to what each individual component's life limit is before you have to replace it. And while they've said that they're not really close to any of those considerations, the less stress you can impart onto the rocket, the better. So if you can leave it at the launch pad to do all this stuff and not roll back, that's the preferable option. That said, if the range comes back and says, nope, you got to redo it, they'll pick it up and they'll haul it back you know, no problem. But yeah, less stress you can put on it, the better. You mentioned about the space shuttle um, controller that you spoke with over the weekend. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, what similarities are some of these issues that this hydrogen is giving to SLS that, that we may have seen in the past? Because this the space shuttle used hydrogen, the space shuttle used these RS-25 engines. Were there similar problems like this in the shuttle program? It's a good question. Um, to to the first one that got them on the launch attempt where they couldn't establish the, the liquid hydrogen bleed for the thermal conditioning, never saw that on shuttle. But that's mainly because the system was radically different for the shuttle than it is for SLS, even though the engines are the same. So that, that issue that got them on the 29th, very much a first vehicle, first time issue not connected to anything with the shuttle program. Leaking hydrogen was was a problem throughout the course of the shuttle program, and it is for any vehicle that uses liquid hydrogen. So the the thing that sort of conspires to to make the public go, well, wait a minute, I don't remember hearing a lot about that, is because a lot of times the leaks you have with liquid hydrogen, if you just shut the flow off, let the seal warm up, and then hit it again with cryo, which is the exact same troubleshooting maneuvers they used on the September 3rd attempt, which did not work, but did work on Monday the 29th when there was a hydrogen leak and they stopped flow, let it warm up, cooled it back down, sealed sealed absolutely fine, and you move on. So the vast majority of the leaks during shuttle were small things like that. Little leak, shut it off, turn it back on, seal worked, off you go. Um, 
the big thing that shuttle ended up having with liquid hydrogen um, was during 1990, the summer of the hydrogen leaks. But this was in this this was a leak between the the shuttle, the orbiter, the part with wings um, that would come back and land, and how it interfaced with its external fuel tank. It wasn't actually ground side leaking up to the vehicle. Uh, so they were different in that regard. Um, ultimate cause of, of what caused the ones in the, in the 90s, they they never kind of really figured out. They just kept trying things and eventually something worked and they just went, all right, moving on um, uh, from that because it worked because they were really scratching their heads. It was That was a hard, hard summer for the program. So it's not the exact same leaks. It's not the exact same issues that we've seen with shuttle. And and one reason, and, and I kind of wish NASA would talk a little bit more about this because it kind of makes sense why we're seeing these issues when we're seeing them in the fueling process, because unlike the space shuttle, they're trying to flow a lot more liquid hydrogen into the vehicle at one time. They're trying to fuel a much larger liquid hydrogen tank, and that all means you need higher pressure to pump it all into the tank. And it's right when they're transitioning to that higher pressure, which is called fast fill, that they're starting to see all of these leaks in the system, but it's a higher pressure than was used for shuttle. It's a higher flow rate than was used for shuttle. So it's not a direct one-to-one comparison. No one who has used liquid hydrogen has used it in this quantity and has used it at these pressures before. So that that is a thing to remember. And 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 as much as you know, we love to say, oh, it's a space shuttle derived vehicle because it's using the engines and the boosters. It, it, it is a brand new rocket. The engines are not configured the same way. They've been changed slightly from the end of the shuttle program to work with SLS. You know, the solid rocket boosters have not flown in this configuration before. The core stage is totally brand new. So this this really is like they took parts of the shuttle to make a brand new vehicle. And, and I think that would really help as part of the messaging of this that hey, the fact that you only tried to do four wet dress rehearsals, didn't get through them all. Well, you fueled Apollo like 17 times. You fueled shuttle 15 times before its first attempts. Of course, they went on attempts one and two. We're only on fueling attempt six with SLS. So when you sort of bring that back down into the historical realm with Apollo and shuttle, where we are is not surprising the main difference is NASA just keeps billing them as launch attempts, which everyone then assumes means you're actually ready to lift off. But what NASA should probably really be calling them are fueling attempts that could result in a liftoff if everything goes to plan. <laughs> right. That would be a glorious side effect, right? If, if, he, <laughs> if, he, if he I know, right? Oh, oh, it worked. Light it. <laughs> Chris, I, this may be too soon to, to talk about, but I mean, all, is what's happening right now on Artemis One? Is this shaping the way future Artemis missions will happen? Are they are they taking what they're learning from this, and will this will then be applied to Artemis Two? Because I've got to think with with humans on board with Artemis Two, and you have this hydrogen leak, that is not going to be a good thing. So you know, how is this preparing for these human launches in the future, the, the very near future? Really, really good question there. Uh, so the biggest thing with the crew on Artemis. Two and, and and with all the crews that will ride Artemis missions on the SLS, is that they they do not operate the way Falcon Nine operates in terms of how they fuel versus when the crew gets in. Right, we, we have been uh, we we've sort of 
only seen since 2020, right, that the crew gets in the rocket, the crew is totally in the rocket, the abort safety systems are activated, and then we start fueling it. Well, SLS is going to fuel even earlier before launch when there's a crew involved than it is for Artemis 1. And that's because you want the rocket fully fueled. You want it in what's known as stable replenishment, where you know it's not leaking, you know everything is good. Um, and then you send the crew out there to put them on the rocket, get them in the capsule, and then be ready to lift off. Very much like how they did it in Shuttle, very much like how ULA and Boeing are going to do it with Starliner and the Atlas V as well. So because of that, they would know before any personnel go back to the pad, whether they have leaks of liquid hydrogen or anything like that. They have a lot of hazardous gas detectors all around the pad and the rocket and, and the tower to really, really know that. And just sort of like they had in Shuttle and Apollo, if there would were to be a reason that people need to get off that tower very, very, very quickly during the process of putting the crew on the vehicle, they'll have slide wire escape baskets and everything that they can run to to get off the tower if, if they need to. But um, other, other than that, there's really nothing else. It, it's going to really be that, that shuttle era, fuel it well before you send the crew out to the rocket and then have that be your safety net. Mm -hmm. Finally, Chris Gebhardt, um, going back to Artemis 1, um, you talked about some of the challenges that the team is facing right now. We've got to solve that leak um, and certify that it is not leaking. And then there's also the issue with the flight termination system and getting that waiver. What other challenges is this team working against that might be putting a little bit of pressure to, to actually get this thing launched in, in the next coming attempts? In terms of some of the things that might be pressuring them just a little bit, um, you know, at the end of September, what they're trying to thread around, they can't interfere with another NASA mission called DART, the Double Asteroid Redirect Test Mission, which is nowhere near Earth and is about to slam into the atmosphere of Didymos, uh, sorry, the, the moon of Didymos, um, an asteroid. Basically, it's testing Earth planetary defense protection. But that mission needs a huge monopoly on the deep space network, which Orion needs to communicate with once it gets beyond the geostationary orbit communication belt. So they're limited and they can't really go before that one because they can't mess up that flight. And then on the flip side of that, you've got Crew-5 coming up to the International Space Station in early October, but that requires about a week of preparation out at the pad for various tests, communications, stuff with the range, the fueling, the static firing, and all of that sort of means SLS can't do anything on neighboring pad B because they'd be messing up ISS crew rotation. So it, it, it's, it's not an easy balance to walk. But the one thing that I will say uh, for anyone who might be worried about, would they let the schedule dictate it? Would they let schedule pressure affect them? Launch director Charlie Blackwell Thompson is not going to let this vehicle go anywhere until she and her team are absolutely convinced they have done everything and that we're actually ready to lift off. So she is that final check. And, and yeah, no, she ain't going to let it go anywhere if it ain't ready. <laughs> it is a complex system. It's a brand new rocket. And I appreciate you joining us to break down all the complexities and, and making it easy to digest. Chris Gebhardt is the assistant managing editor at nasaspaceflight.com. You've all been doing a great job streaming all of these awesome space missions. So thank you for that. Uh, Chris Gebhardt, thank you so much for, for joining us today. My pleasure. Always fun to be on. Are we there yet? I can't wait until we get an answer to that, too. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? 
Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News, editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. More coverage of the Artemis mission and everything else happening in space is on our website, wmfe.org space. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 